0: A fun experience together. I trust it will build us as a body. We're going to remind ourselves of the value of scripture memory. Steve mentioned the, the bulletin is laid out a little differently. That's so that the scripture memory card that it can be placed right there with the, order, with, the um, with the outline for the message. And if, it was, if the, it was on still on the back, well, then that would be on the back and it would be falling out. Okay, so said, hey, let's make a little adjustment here. And notice that card. That card has both non-bolded print and bolded print. There won't always be this. But the bolded print, if you see both, the bolded print is the verse we're trying to memorize together. Now, how are we are going to do that? Let's make it simple, friends. Put it on your table where you eat. Maybe as a family, each night, you read the verse. As you give thanks for your meal, you read the verse and say, here's the verse we're all looking at together as a body. Put it on your, on your mirror in, in the bathroom where in the morning and the evening you're going to see it. As you do your personal cares, maybe you want to keep it on your dashboard. And when you're stopped at a stoplight, you pick it up and look at it. Okay? Or if somebody else is in the vehicle with you, say, hey, why don't we just read this together? Because I'm trying to internalize this. And you see, it doesn't have to be heavy. It doesn't have to be anything that is like, oh, this is really burdensome. And we'll find that it just works for us to begin to uh, internalize God's Word in a new, fresh way. So we're trying to remind ourselves as a body, it's good to memorize Scripture. Third thing I'm hoping we'll do is refresh ourselves on the big picture of the Bible. A big picture view of Scripture. Now, within the context of the church, we haven't taught Scripture this way for the most part. We, I see we teach Scripture in one of a couple of ways. This at least has been my, my sense as to what's going on for people. Preachers or vacation Bible school preparers, or Sunday school lesson preparers, we, we grab a particular story, we talk on it, we teach it, here's what went on, and then we tack a moral to the end of it. And that's how we've taught the Bible. Now the problem with that is, in that context, our understanding is the Bible is all these different individual stories that don't necessarily relate to each other. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible is one continuing story from beginning to end. And all of these other stories have a particular place in there. And it's just relative, I've got to be honest with you, relative to my own wiring, that I am a big picture kind of guy, and so occasionally it's like, we've got to step back and let's make sure we're getting the big picture. So I'm hoping that this will bring us and refresh us on there's this big picture in our Bibles, that it's not all, individual, not all individual stories. And you go, well, what's the value in that? Well, just two days ago, was this by God sovereignly trying to encourage you? Because he knows some of you are already going, you're losing me, Gary. This came along. It's a subject line was long time, no see. Hi, Gary. From an Ann Nelson. Ann has actually been in our church one time. She and her husband Eric came and visited us. And they're from the previous ministry where I served. And um, right, she wrote some nice things that, that, that she was just taking time. It was very kind of her to do that. I haven't heard from her, spoken to her in years. And this is one sentence she put in as far as a little bit being encouraged. You took my idea seriously. She's talking about uh, being encouraging to her. And she said, and you taught a killer Bible overview class. Wow, I thought that's awesome. Thank you. I'm going to use that Sunday morning because we're going to talk about doing this overview by moving through all the scriptures. And then I remembered, oh yeah. The young people used to say, you're boring us to death with this, Barrett. That's what she meant by a killer Bible overview class. (laughs) So... I will do my best to not be boring. Okay? However, if you talk to my kids, they'll say that's next to impossible. That means I need you to pray for me each week. Say, Lord, help him to not be boring. Now, there's no guarantee that I can reach that goal. But there is one thing I would like to point out. Do you know who taught the shortest Bible overview ever? you know who taught that? You didn't I believe it was Jesus, because in Matthew chapter 13, as he's speaking out a number of parables, we read this... Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Uh, how, how then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to gather, uh, to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in the bundles to burn. Then, uh, uh, then gather the wheat into my barn." And then as we drop down to verse 36, after having heard that parable, we'll read this. Jesus uh, sent the multitude away, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned into the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the Son in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so here we see a picture that Jesus taught. That God is establishing his kingdom. The evil one comes in, seeks to disrupt it, and at the end, everything is made clear. All right? That's a pretty quick overview, if you will. We're going to go a little slower than that. We're going to fill in a few spaces, I trust, I hope. A little bit enjoyable in the process, and one of the things you'll see us lay out is the goal is to just approach two things each week. Real simple. First is the landscape. You see that we've got that written there for you? <coughs> the landscape. In this particular book, it's, uh, it's about Genesis, Right? when we're talking about the landscape, it's like, hey, we're just kind of looking over this book as a whole, and we're seeing it from one end to the other, making a few comments on it. What we've noticed here in the book of Genesis is very simple for us to understand. Genesis means beginning. Chapters 1 to 11 are an entity unto themselves, describing creation and the fall of mankind. If you read Genesis a few times, you'll pick up on that. You will not miss it. The examples of man's behavior exemplify the desperation of his broken condition. God offers a gracious hope to men. Chapters 12 to 50 become the leading edge. They're the leading edge as to how God is now going to bring that hope to fulfillment in the person of a deliverer who will come to the descendants of Abraham. So Abraham starts in chapter 12, and everything and the rest of the redemptive work you can, in one way or another, tie back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So that's the landscape. And then with each landscape, we're going to look at the core. The core will be the text that we're going to look at on that given day. This past week, Mark brought his uh, work team in and had a chance to sit with one of the guys right in here, and he described that in a previous job that he had, uh, when they were going to bring in the light rail, his task was at certain places along where the light rail would be, as he was to drill down, and uh, he'd go about 12 inches. And someone would come behind him as he got off that hard surface layer. Someone would come behind him and they would then core what was below that because they needed to know what is this light rail going to be sitting on. Do you understand what coring is? Coring is you dig down, you pull up a sample and you can look at the layers and see what's in that sample. And so these guys were going to core right where he had started and opened up access to the ground. Well, that's what we're going to do. We'll take a brief look at the landscape, and we are going to hit a core somewhere. And in that core is where we will find the memory verse and our text for today, for that particular day. Real simple, a lot of fun. Hope you'll go with us for the journey. Now, to understand the significance of our text for today... It would make no sense if all you had was that one verse. You'd be like, I don't get what this is about. We must understand it in its context. So I want to set up the context real simply for us, and I trust it will then make sense. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, It recounts God sowing the good seed, if you will, of the parable. It recounts God doing a work, God establishing his kingdom, God doing something good. And you will recall, if you go back and look at Genesis 1 and 2, that after everything that God made, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when he completed it and he looked at everything, he said, it is very good. And he had created for mankind this idyllic situation there in the garden where man was to tend the garden. He was to have dominion over the animals. And he was to reflect God's image by his role in the world of dominion, of relationship with himself and his wife, procreating children. He was to reflect God's uh, creativity by taking of the stuff of the garden and the elements of the earth and begin to beautify all that was there, a magnificent setting into which God placed man, good seed. And then the evil one comes in, and surreptitiously he plants bad seed, which Jesus referred to as the tares. The devil himself comes in and disrupts this idyllic scene. Do you know why Jesus called what the, what the devil planted tares? Do you know why he called them tares? Because everything that grows up from it is terrible. Ba-dum-boom. Okay? Like that joke okay? Clearly, that joke must have been from the dark side, because not one of you left. But uh, there it is. All right, here's the point. The guy comes in, and he said, what does he say to them? Here they have this magnificent situation. They're to reflect God's image through how they live out their lives with dominion, creativity, relationship, all these different ways. He says, hey, you don't realize, guys, God's keeping something from you, You know that tree in the center of the garden, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He doesn't want you to eat of that because he wants to keep the best for himself. But if you were to eat of that, if you were to make it about you rather than God's instructions to you, you yourself will become as gods, knowing good and evil. And friends, when we are the authors, when we are the source, when we are the ones who define what good and evil is, we are in complete control. And that's what he promised to them. That they would now have control in a way and become gods rather than just be in the image of God. He said, you'll become the center of all authority. And they did. They followed him. They believed his lie. Which leaves us with that question. So how did that work out for mankind? How did that play itself out when he came in and he sowed his tears? Well... We're given some clear understanding as we look at some of those early verses in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. find it interesting that immediately after chapter 3 follows immediately after is 4. Notice the content of Genesis chapter 4. It's stuff you've heard before. But it gives clarity to the verse we want to get to. Genesis 4, 8. You know the story. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. You can go back and, and listen and see, you know, read, fill in the details for yourself if you like. But the very first account we have of mankind following their giving obedience to the evil one is one guy murders his brother. And then if you go down to Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, you got another character comes along in a little bit. And we read this, Then Lamech said to his wives, again, you can look at the details, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. Two accounts immediately following the fall in chapter 3, And both of them describe for us murder. So how did it work out for man to take of those terrors and to buy into that? Then if we follow the account a little bit further, you get to Genesis chapter 6, and you guys have heard me say this so often. We read in verse 11, and this is the account with Noah, the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And, God, and then in verse 13, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God realizes, realizes it's time to come. There's a place of judgment that must fall. Because mankind, walking out on his own path, has turned violent. I think of it as abusive power. So much so... That to just murder, to destroy his neighbor, that's how it works, friends. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Then, God cleanses the earth through that flood, and we come to Genesis chapter 11. Once again, man decides to walk off on his own course. He was told to refill the earth, to subdue it, but to spread out over it. And we read in chapter 11, verse 1, "...now the whole earth had one language and one speech." It came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a place in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And with rebelliousness and pride, those who have partaken and are embracing the, the, the tares, if you will, Satan's lie, have said, Hey, wait, we're going to get all spread out, and, and who knows what will happen at that point. Got a better idea. Let's forget what God said. Let's pull together. Let's be one. Let's make a tower to heaven. That's how we'll make our own way to God and... A name for ourselves. Rebelliousness and pride. Power resulting in murder. Pride resulting in just an absolute rejection towards what God would do. And so the scripture, I think, is pretty clear that when man chose to go his own way, when he said, hey, it's about me, I'm going to be my own God, thank you. I'll be my own moral authority, thank you. When man becomes man-centered, we get this. Man-centered mankind is a mess. That's simple. Man-centered mankind is a mess. You let man go in the direction he wants to go, he will, he will throw off the knowledge of God. Read Romans 1. He will, and then he will enter into a spiral that gets uglier and uglier and uglier. Because that's the man-centered mess that man is when God is not his authority, when he is his own authority. I have a note here that says... uh, he really becomes terrible when he's at his own center, but I already tried that line, and I'm not going there again. All right, get that out of there, okay? let me. See. In fact, let me just scratch that off in case I ever use these notes again. All right, get rid of that one. But friends, here's the deal. In the midst of this ugly, discouraging, dark, and would we not agree accurate, picture of who man is, God slips in an almost unnoticed positive note. And so I say we have to see the context for our verse for today. I'm willing to bet most of the time we read it and we go right by it. See, partly because it's, it's layered in there with some of those this begot so-and-so and this begot so-and-so, we automatically assume, well, that can't be any fun to read. So I'm not going to really pay attention to what is there. But in one of those so-and-sos, be a so-and-so, a ray of light is interjected amidst this very dark narrative. Genesis chapter 4, after the account of Lamech, the murderer, before the account of the violence of mankind as a whole, slipped in here, we have this little note, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, remember, whom Cain killed. So now there's this another son who comes in. We all know about Cain and Abel. We don't give much thought to this guy by the name of Seth and what happened. And as for Seth, to him also was born a son, and his name was Enosh. And this is why this is our memory verse for today. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Yep, friends, it's absolutely true. Man-centered mankind is a mess. But God-centered mankind has a hope. And that's what's being set forth for us here And that thought, that concept, that idea will carry itself all the way through to the end of the Bible. I.e., Jesus talking about it all gets sorted out in the end times when they get separated out. See, the line of Seth appears to have understood the hopelessness of mankind's self-centeredness. And in complete dependence upon God, they began to look to him for help. And you can follow, you can see this again in Genesis 12, where Abraham calls on the name of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 26, where Isaac calls on the name of the Lord. And it's repeated in a number of places throughout Scripture. Now, here's the point, friends. And that's what Jesus was saying in his parable. Throughout the rest of God's redemptive account, you can trace two lines. Those who are self-centered in their own wisdom and the ugliness that it produces as they try in their own wisdom and authority to establish a world without God. And the other line is those who call on the name of the Lord. And the rest of the Bible will give us pictures of where each of these are at as it moves through time. As with the wheat and tares parable that the Lord Jesus Christ taught, they're both bearing a crop. And it's only going to be separated out at the end of the age. Got to get all the way over to Revelation before you're going to see where it went. Now, some people would claim... That as we look at this, well, you know, this was written a few thousand years ago, and, and they hadn't, man hadn't gotten to the point where he was as enlightened, he didn't understand things as much. And they would claim man has progressed. Man has evolved. He's getting better and better. And that's this kind of darkness, yes, we agree that it's terrible to murder, but, but man is growing in such a way that eventually he will leave this behind him. He's no longer the brutish character described in this narrative in the early chapters of Genesis. But reality tells us, does it not, friends? Does it not tell us that he's not improved at all? That mankind is every bit as brutish, every bit as proud and arrogant and rebellious as in the very first chapter following the fall. Now, well, you might want to argue that, oh, no, that's not the case, but let's just talk about a couple of things here. The question of power. Man still, I'm making the statement, man still abuses power. What's been the big issue this whole week in the political discourse? The memo. The memo. And people are all fired up about getting it out. And people are all fired up that to get it out is going to destroy the nation. And all the people who are fired up are people with political positions and power. And See, they will, they will make statements, they will, they will lie, they will twist things entirely in order to use their position, their place, their power for their own benefit. And friends, we do understand the broken people are on both sides of the political aisle, right? We got that, right? Our Finding Fathers had an amazing understanding of this and wisdom to build checks and balances into our political system. And that's one of the claims that is being made. We don't know yet what's reality here because men are trying to establish their power positions. But one one of the claims that is being made is that, you know, we've got people working in the deep state who are using their power unchecked. And they've done some things that are illegal, and those who are claiming they should go to jail. Well, that's politics, all right? We know that, yeah. They're always vying for power. That's what they want. Because once they have the power, then they're going to treat everybody really good. They are totally selfless. They are the selfless public servants. Right, okay. Do you know the name Brooke Cruz? Recognize anybody recognize that? If you don't, you most likely, because this is in the national news, will recognize the name right alongside of it is always Savannah Greywind. Now you know. And this woman was on trial and fully admitted that she did a cesarean on Savannah Greywind while Savannah Greywind was still living. And Savannah Greywind bled out in light of that. Hmm. You know this doctor by the name of Nasser who's been in the news? Can you fathom anything like that? I cannot fathom that. At what point did this man's not, conscience not kick in and say, these girls are entrusted to you, and it is evil to use your position of power to abuse them? And then somebody sent to Lori, and it might have been Heather Olson, I'm not sure where you got that, and we never went further with it, sent to Lori that relative to the Super Bowl, and you know this happens anywhere, right? Anywhere where there's going to be a large gathering of people. Who else comes in right, right before them are the traffickers. And so there are women, probably some young boys being sex trafficked, for the crowds that are coming to the Super Bowl today, right here in Minnesota. And there are the labor traffickers. And this continues around the world. There is nothing new about this, friends. Because this is man and how he abuses power. Is it not an abuse of power to traffic someone? Is it not, I got the power, and I'm going to make you do what I want. Because i got the power, and you're going to do it for my financial benefit. Man hasn't changed. Man hasn't improved. Man is as desperately lost and in darkness as he was moments after the fall. So man still abuses power, and man is still arrogant and proud. Did you watch the State of the Union Address? You know, if you did, you know that there were people who are sitting on the conservative side of the world in their living rooms, and they're hearing this, they go, going, we're great, we're awesome, we're incredible, because we do all the right things. And you know, there were other people who watched the, those on the liberal side of the aisle, never stood up for things they should sit up, and they're like, yeah, yeah, show them, brother. Do not stand up. Stand for Sit for what is right by not standing or something like that. But you know on both sides, there's pride and arrogance for the position that we hold in this. And friends, it's going to happen at a football game today, isn't it? You know that people are going to be proud and arrogant. They're going to want to see their team with a whole lot of power. So, I got a jersey on today. Wore the Vikings jersey last week. Figured I better have a Packers jersey on this week. We talk about football. See, the question is today now, as this game unfolds in a little bit, where are you at on the game? Hey, you want the Patriots to win? Woo! Eagles to win? Woo! Most people go, don't even know who the Patriots and Eagles are. I'm not into football. My point is this. There's three positions you have. You're for this team, you're for that team, you don't care. Three possible positions as these two forces come head to head. Are you following me? And ultimately, whatever position you're holding for, it doesn't matter. Ask people in a month who actually played in the Super Bowl. And the number who can remember will go down each month from here on. Where was it played? We'll remember forever. It played in Minnesota. Woo! We're proud. But, if you're not from Minnesota, you'll forget. Because whatever of the three positions you choose, it ultimately doesn't matter. Here's my point, friends. Jesus taught clearly About the wheat and the tares. And that one day there's a separating that comes out in the end. We look at our text for today. And we see in contrast to the dark kingdom are those who call on the name of the Lord. There's two streams that will move throughout the entire course of scripture as we read it. I'm not saying we're going to reference it every time. But as you read, always be aware of it. There are two streams following through. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. It's going to get figured out in the end. We already know who's going to win. That isn't a question. The question is, what's our decision? See, because we have three decisions, potentially. We can say, hey, hey, I'm all for the kingdom of darkness. I want to do what I want to do. And there may be somebody here like, yep, you can have your Jesus thing. I heard that magnificent, kind, and gentle statement about Jalen and he loves his Jesus, and not me. <laughs> not interested. That's my choice. Put me in with those who are man-centered. The other side is, oh man, huh? I want in with Jesus, of course. That's the winning side. I see what the dark side does. I don't need that. So somehow I got to figure out what this Jesus thing is. What I want to speak to today though friends as much as anything is the third position says well I don't know that it really matters. See it doesn't matter which team you choose you root for in a football game. It really doesn't. That's why I got a Patriots or a Packers jersey and I've got a Vikings jersey and I'm glad for either of them to win but bottom line it doesn't matter. But it does matter what we do with one of these three choices. We either embrace the light. We, like Seth and Enosh, we call on the name of the Lord and in there is hope. Or, or. We say, nope, don't want it. And we think, or I'll come over here and I'll say, well, I I don't think it matters. I'm just not going to make a decision. Can I tell you, friends? I want to be clear. Can I tell you? This decision is this decision. We think there are three decisions. There are two. Only two. We either embrace the things of God as he has revealed them, and we humble ourselves, we understand man's fallen condition... And we say, i got to call on the name of the Lord if I'm ever going to get things straightened out in my own life or help others to be straight. Or we reject that and we seek to be our own gods. This third position over here is the second position. They go hand in hand. You can't escape this one. And every decision matters. So friends, I'm going to watch a Super Bowl tonight. Kind of. But that doesn't really matter. Many of us will watch it tonight, but it doesn't really matter. What does matter is, what do we do with calling on the name of the Lord? Will we humble ourselves and recognize He's the only hope for mankind lost in darkness and in sin, in murderous power and arrogant pride? Will we humble ourselves to that, bend the knee to Him, or will we say, "Nope, don't want it? because there's only two. To say it doesn't matter means you don't want it. Oh, friends, Jesus said in his parable, it's all going to get sorted out in the end. And there are eternal implications. The tares, he says, will be pulled out and cast into the fire. The wheat will enter into the kingdom. There's no other alternative and that's why our decisions matter. Father, thank you. I pray, Lord, that you'll stir each of us to understand where are we at in this thing, of these, these two kingdoms that are in conflict with one another, that there are the tares, there is the wheat, that there, there is this darkness that we can pursue in being in Satan's kingdom and say, "He's got the answers, or we can bend our knee and yield our pride and our arrogance and our power to the Lord Jesus Christ, and say, Lord Jesus, you alone are my hope. It's your kingdom that I desire. Father, I pray that not one of us will leave here today without embracing the magnificent lordship and saviorship of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.